This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It's a pleasure to, to be invited to speak here today. Um, my name is Liz Warren. Uh, I have a PhD in physiology from the University of California at Davis, uh, born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area. I've worked at the Johnson Space Center uh, in Houston, Texas, uh, for almost 17 years now in a variety of roles. Most of that time was in NASA's human research program. Then I moved over to the ISS uh, program science office, and and now I work uh, for the ISS uh, U.S. National Laboratory. Actually, that's a good segue to what I really want to first start out uh, talking about, which is... um, the ISS as a laboratory, we think of it as a place where, you know, astronauts are coming and going and you, you hear about rockets launching and bringing cargo, but, uh, and it's, it's this tremendous uh, million pounds of hardware uh, built in different nations, brought together in orbit to make a structure that is about the size of a football field. It's home to an international crew with different cultures And it's also an incredible laboratory uh, to perform research, which cannot be done on Earth. Why do we do research in space? Why space? Well, there are really three unique propositions that are offered by the space station. Uh, Sustained microgravity, an extreme condition uh, outside the space station, and also a vantage point uh, with which to study the Earth and and in our climate for remote sensing. So microgravity, it has profound effects on physical systems. Surface tension and capillarity dominate fluid behavior. Buoyancy-driven convection doesn't exist. Hot air doesn't rise, cold air doesn't sink. Microgravity also has profound effects on living systems from microbes to cells to animals to humans, there are changes brought about by exposure to microgravity. And I'll talk a lot more about those later. Um, But what I like to, uh, to say when I'm speaking to other scientists about doing research in microgravity, I say it's akin to using a microscope for the first time, uh, looking at your science with a new lens with which to make discoveries. It is really that profound of a difference. So in 2005, uh, Congress designated the US portion of the space station as a national laboratory. And what's a national laboratory? Usually national laboratories are very unique research facilities that are open to many users to solve big problems. The organization I work for, it's called the Center for the Advancement of Science and Space. We manage the ISS National Laboratory. And our goal is to advance and maximize utilization of the International Space Station by pursuing groundbreaking science, technology, and innovation not possible on Earth. So how is that different from what NASA does? Well, in contrast to NASA's missions to use the space station to benefit further space exploration goals, our mandate at the ISS National Lab is to use 
or actually is really to provide access to the space station, to the research community interested in benefiting life on Earth, essentially to bring value back to the taxpayer. We work with academic institutions, other government agencies like the NIH, NSF, DOD, USDA, FDA, uh, and industry, companies, large and small. So today I'm going to walk through a few examples of research that may interest you. Uh, the first examples I'm going to discuss are protein crystal growth related. So what does that mean? There are a couple hundred thousand different proteins in the human body. And if you know their structure, you can design a, a drug that can mimic, enhance, or inhibit that protein. And proteins have all kinds of functions. In fact, just about every function that happens in a cell is, is, is or in your body is, is due to a protein. But the trick is, uh, if you want to understand the atomic and exact structure of one of those proteins, it's a little hard to do that in laboratories on Earth. We're pretty good at it, but you can. it's difficult to get images in just the right resolution. Also, when crystals are grown on Earth, they grow with a little bit of a distortion from gravity. Protein crystal growth in microgravity allows for slower growth of those crystals with less buoyancy-driven distortions, and the crystals can grow larger more uniformly and more perfectly. And they don't sink to the bottom of your test tube or sink to the bottom of your flask where they might get distorted. So that said, there's a commonly prescribed cancer drug that you may have heard of. You might've heard some advertisements for a drug called Keytruda. It's made by Merck. Uh, a patient uh, has to come into the clinic. They go every couple of weeks and they get an infusion of this IV drug called Keytruda to help treat cancer. That works great, but there are some disadvantages and some inconveniences of having to come into a clinic. It, it uh, has some practical limitations and it affects patient quality of life. So Merck Pharmaceuticals was interested in taking this Keytruda to the space station and seeing if they could refine the size of the crystals and make them more uniform. Um, and so they have now done that and they have mimicked, or basically they, what they're able to do is rather than having the patient come into the clinic to get an IV infusion, they can be sent home with an, an injectable that they keep in the refrigerator and give themselves the injections of the drugs so they can do this all at home. And Merck uh, has, is working on this it hasn't been, um, it's not available yet, but uh, it has to go through a lot of testing as you're aware. But uh, essentially what they've also done now is mimicked some of the manufacturing processes that they tried on orbit. They've replicated those here on earth. So they're not gonna have to take everything to orbit, which is, which is a really nice, uh, really nice way to, to not have to keep going to space to do this. Another PCG example. Uh, this work was done by the Michael J. Fox Foundation. They were targeting a leucine-rich uh, repeat kinase 2, also known as Dardarin, to treat Parkinson's disease. And of course, Parkinson's disease is a chronic neurodegenerative disease that affects uh, one in 100 people over the age of 60. It is estimated that approximately 1 million people have the disease in the U.S. and over 6 million worldwide. 
The exact cause of PD is unknown, but recent genetic studies have linked mutations in certain genes to an increase in PD risk. One example is this LERC2 protein that I mentioned. What I, want, what I want to highlight here is how integral the astronaut crew was for this investigation. Here you see Alex Gerst pipetting different concentrations of precipitate and solutions in a well plate. And a few days later, he used a microscope uh, to see which concentrations were producing the right crystals so that he could further work on those concentrations. All of this work was remote guided from the ground, but you can see that the crew is really integral in some of these uh, experiments. They're the hands, eyes, and ears of the researchers. Okay, last example of protein crystal growth. This one is from the National Cancer Institute. They aimed to grow a protein called RAS uh, in microgravity to better understand the role of RAS in human cancer. And this, you know, the idea here is to improve cancer treatments. So mutations in, in KRAS specifically are implicated in a third of all cancers. So the results were pretty good. You can see in the upper right-hand side, that's the best crystal they were able to get in earth gravity and the best crystals they were able to get in ISS microgravity. You can see just visually, these crystals look a little bit different. So they're not quite there. There's still one hypervariable region of the protein that they were not able to crystallize very well. So they may have to try another space flight, but um, that's, that's kind of the way it goes on the space station. You try something, you get results and you might need to iterate and try it again. Here's another cancer related study. It turns out there aren't any great in vitro models for resting normal endothelial tissue, that's endothelial tissue in, 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 in your blood vessels, uh, to examine drug toxicity. So interestingly, endothelial tissues that are cultured on the space station have been reported to share many features with what's happening in your, in your body in vivo, including a persistent state of reduced cell growth that we call quiescence. So a small biotech firm called AngieX uh, is working on a cancer therapy, and they wanted to validate a model of using microgravity to test drugs in quiet endothelial tissue. So the results were really promising. High doses of the cancer drug uh, were, were, were put through this tissue, and they did not kill the cells in spaceflight, but they did kill the cells on the ground. And what that kind of indicates is, indeed, there is a difference between endothelial tissue on Earth in vitro and in space. Exciting results here. I just heard last week, they are set to begin phase one clinical trials late this year. Here's another interesting uh, experiment. Another small startup company called Lamb Division is developing a protein-based retinal prosthetic. So an artificial retina, actually probably better to say an, uh, a retinal implant to restore vision to millions of people who have retinal uh, degenerative diseases. And that includes retinitis pigmentosa and age-related macular degeneration. So this retinal implant consists of multiple layers of a light activated protein and is generated by a layer by layer uh, process and by which the, the, the protein binds to it to a kind of a, 
a scaffold. Now, gravity interferes a little bit when, when you do this on Earth and you get some imperfections. And, and this company wanted to bring this experiment to the space station to see if they could get very uniform, very clean deposition of layers. And uh, they've had some luck demonstrating that. They still need to do a little bit of tweaking, but, uh, but this is another exciting potential. Okay, I'm going to shift gears a little bit here. And as you may be familiar, hopefully you've heard some of this in previous uh, med school talks, spaceflight induces a number of physiological changes in our astronauts. Muscle atrophy, bone loss, immune dysfunction, cardiovascular deconditioning, spaceflight-associated neuroocular syndrome, all of this happens in otherwise extremely healthy individuals. And these changes appear to reverse themselves uh, upon return to Earth. All of these changes that I mentioned, they appear pretty similar to maladies on Earth, which makes studying astronauts in space a very intriguing potential for understanding disease processes on Earth. Which brings me to regenerative medicine. Essentially, regrowing, repairing, or replacing cells, tissues, or organs. So I've got a lot of lizards in my backyard right now. And if I go outside, or if my cat goes and gets one, and you, you pick it up by the tail, the tail drops off, the lizard runs away, and the lizard is going to grow a new tail while you're distracted with the, uh, with, the, with the tail that dropped off. How come lizards can do that and we can't regrow limbs? It's an intriguing question. And it's due in part to stem cells and concentration of stem cells. Uh, stem cells are unique cells in our body that can develop uh, into any other specialized cell, like a neuron or a cardiomyocyte. Now, one day, stem cells and stem cell-based therapies may be much more widely used to treat a variety of illnesses. We're not quite there yet uh, for a variety of reasons. Some of those reasons have to do with uh, being able to regrow or grow enough stem cells to be therapeutically useful. Um, and also there's a challenge in keeping stem cells from differentiating into another kind of cell before that time. So there's a lot of work that has to be done in cell so, uh, stem cell work here on earth, but we're also doing this in space. There seems to be an advantage to culturing stem cells and expanding stem cells in space. Uh, some of this data is, is anecdotal, and it's yet to be absolutely defined, but um, it's pretty exciting, and there's some really exciting possibilities. We've, over the last couple of years, we've actually been flying several stem cell investigations to the space station. Um, again, it kind of demonstrates uh, the ability on the space station to do really complex uh, work without much ground training, which is pretty exciting. One use of stem cells is in biomanufacturing of tissues and organs. We are able to uh, take any patient, take some of their blood cells or even skin cells, revert those cells back into stem cells and then reprogram them to become, say, an, a heart cell. Because they came from the patient, there's no uh, concern that those cells, if we take them 
bioprint them, kind of generate new uh, organs, if you will, although we're not quite there yet, they won't be rejected by that by that individual uh, because they are generated from cells from that individual. Now we can do bioprinting uh, on Earth. This is not something that's only done in space. However, we're limited to about a centimeter thickness of tissue on Earth because of you have to build a scaffold and the weight of the tissue starts to collapse on, on little nascent baby little blood vessels. But in microgravity, we're able to bioprint tissues much larger. Now, I don't want to overpromise here. We're not printing organs in space yet. We may actually never even get there. But what we're learning is maybe going to be applicable here on Earth and and. And that's a pretty exciting potential because think of all of the people, hundreds of thousands of people in in the world that are needing an organ transplant and and just waiting on a list. Okay, now I'm going to shift gears again. Sorry, it's kind of a lot crammed into here um, to something called tissue chips or organs on chips or microphysiological systems. Lots of names. These are bioengineered. silicone or biocompatible plastic devices that support living human tissues in a 3D matrix. And they tend to replicate human physiology better in a tissue chip, cells do that is, than they do in standard two-dimensional cell culture. So in other words, tissue chips recapitulate complex human physiological responses better than standard 2D cell culture in a flask. Uh, In that way, these cell cultures or these tissue chips actually give cells kind of a home away from home. And it has to do with the matrix that they're in and and the the way you can flow media through and and a variety of, of kind of recapitulating human organ behavior. And because of this, Uh, you can actually model diseases using tissue chips. You can even connect multiple tissue chips together to get more of a whole body response. So very exciting stuff. A lot of this research is sponsored on the space station right now by the NIH. In the United States, as you've probably recently learned about uh, due to COVID, it takes a lot of effort to get a new experimental drug through all of the clearances and from the from the lab to your medicine cabinet. It billions of dollars and often many years, and there, the success rate is low. Um, it takes, I, I think, it's about one in five thousand new ideas for a pharmaceutical actually make it through something called the Valley of Death. Actually, makes it through the FDA process. Um, And the NIH is interested in speeding that up, not through any shortcuts, not through uh, short circuiting what the FDA does to protect us, but the ability to screen drugs faster. That's what they're using tissue chips for. And it doesn't replace human testing. It may one day replace uh, animal testing, which is interesting. But, you know, imagine instead of using 100,000 people to test a drug, that might take years. Imagine hooking up a hundred thousand tissue chips to a drug and very quickly sequencing and going through and understanding how that drug might affect 
lots and lots of different people. You can do this much quicker and make it more turnkey. And that's kind of what the, what the NIH is interested in using tissue chips for. And that is what the Chips in Space program is all about. If you want to study, say, a bone loss disease process, osteoporosis, osteopenia, and you want to study that on Earth, in humans or in tissue chips, it would take years to do because the process is slow, uh, generally. Uh, but we know that astronauts lose bone very quickly in space. Hmm. So do you see how the NIH is now intrigued by spaceflight? Because a lot of those diseases or these maladies that I mentioned, immune dysfunction, cardiovascular deconditioning, bone loss, all of those things happen really quickly upon uh, exposure to microgravity. So essentially, the NIH is using spaceflight as a rapid disease process uh, model, which is pretty cool. So uh, nine different projects were selected by the NIH. And each of these projects uh, gets to fly twice to the space station. Usually that first flight we expect is going to be a learning process. Uh, little tweaks and modifications are being made. And uh, the idea is generally validate the system, validate that the tissue chip responds similarly to astronauts in space. And then, if, if possible, test some new therapeutics while you're at it. And maybe not new therapeutics, but existing therapeutics so you know how the drug is supposed to act. And this is a really exciting process. Uh, one of these projects, immunosenescence, is aging of the immune system. Fascinating stuff. I want to tell you a quick story, though, about one of these tissue chip projects that uh, actually got started in 2016. Kate Rubens was on board the space station, and she uh, demonstrated the first long-term cell culture uh, in space. And she did this with a Stanford group. Uh, Joe Wu and his, his graduate students were studying cardiovascular health uh, with simple two-dimensional cell culture. It was extremely complex at the time, but it was simplistic now that we look back on it. And uh, four years later, She's back on the space station. The same lab at Stanford has uh, happened to send another experiment up. They've spent four years advancing their science. Now, instead of a two-dimensional cell culture, they're using a three-dimensional tissue construct, which is much more physiologically relevant, uh, but essentially looking at the same thing, cardiovascular disease. So this was kind of just a neat little story arc that Kate happened to be the same, the same person to, to do this research. Um, very quickly, I also want to point out which uh, the, the tremendous significance that we've just passed 20 years of continuous human presence on the International Space Station. The science examples that I just rushed through are just a handful. There's so much good work happening on the space station. I wish I could tell you about all of it, but I, I don't even know. I don't, I, I, there's no way I could cram it all in. And then in my remaining time, I want to tell uh, a little story about inspiration. Um, you know, the space station is an extremely inspiring place to me. But that segues nicely to how I even got started on this career path. Um, I was in high school 
And I was already a pretty big space geek. I had decided that I wanted to work at NASA. I also had a love for biology and physiology, but I really thought I was going to have to choose. I thought there's no way you can do both of those in the same career. So I'll go work at NASA. I'll be an engineer. And on the side, I'm going to do biology on the weekends. And uh, Millie Hughes-Fulford happened to be my neighbor. She grew up, she was in Mill Valley. I, was, I grew up in Tiburon. I was in high school. My mom saw an article in the paper, cut it out and said, hey, look at this. There's an astronaut that lives near us that is doing a whole mission on space biology. Uh, we should call her up and invite her over. And of course, this was mortifying to me at 13 years old. I was like, no, mom, you can't just call up an astronaut. But she did. Millie came over to my house. We had tea or whatever. And she told me, now you can absolutely do the career of your dreams, which is being a biology uh, or a biologist at NASA. And it was a uh, life changing for me. It set my course. And uh, I've, I kept in touch with Millie um, over the years. I even worked with her for a while at UCSF and actually over at the VA Medical Center. And uh, she, she had really immeasurable impact on my life. So thank you for uh, dedicating this series to Millie. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.